This morning, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Um, we are going to be taking a break uh, from our series in 1 John. And over the coming weeks, we'll have several different uh, men that will stand here in this place and uh, present the Word of God to you. Uh, I encourage you to be excited for that time and um, pray for those men as they prepare uh, to do that. Uh, but as we take a break from 1 John, uh, they're going to be kind of just delivering uh, sermons that the Lord has put on their heart um, that are away from 1 John. doesn't mean they can't be in 1 John. They can be in 1 John. There's been no restriction on that. You can teach anything in the Bible, just stay away from 1 John. That's mine. No, that's not, that's not, not, not what we're doing. Um, anyways, I'm just letting you know they have freedom to kind of preach from the Word wherever in the Word that the Lord leads them. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 34. And so we're going to read this together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Let's read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Should be a fairly familiar passage to you as nearly every Sunday we read uh, verses 23 through 34 together or some amount of that. Uh, so hopefully it's familiar. 
Um, and so this morning we come to this passage and I want you to see that it's divided really into three main parts. Uh, the three main parts of this, I would say, are verses 17 through 22, which come to us by way of a rebuke. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church. And to be quite honest, most of the book of 1 Corinthians is a rebuke for the Corinthian church. Uh, verses 23 through 26, I, I would divide that into merely the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul is reminding them of things that he's already uh, given to them in the institution of the Lord's Supper by the Lord himself. And then in verses 27 through 34, he gives instruction in how we ought to properly come to the Lord's table. And so let's look at this first part at this rebuke this morning in verses 17 through 22. And it's interesting here, if you look at verse number 1 uh, in chapter 11, um, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So we've, we, he's, he's had some rebuke, he's given them some time off, and, and he starts uh, here what we call chapter 11, though Paul didn't have, you know, he didn't write a big 11 in his manuscript and number all the stuff that came way later. Um, but as he begins this part of the letter, uh, he says, I commend you, but in this I commend you. And he talks about some of the things that he commends them in. And then we get to verse 17, and there's now a contrast, right? As he comes in, he says, but in this I do not commend you. And there, there's even almost an escalation with Paul that, that the things that he's commending them in, yeah, these are good and right and true. Okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, but in what he's not commending them in now is one of the most important things uh, for the church. Why? Because this is what the Lord himself has instituted for us. This is more than, as he says in verse number two, uh, maintain the traditions as I delivered to them to you. These, these are things that the church had been doing already from the beginning, but they didn't have to do with the very institution of the Lord Himself in providing this supper for the church, for His people. Now let's remember where this supper took place. This supper took place not, not in its own vacuum, right? When did the Last Supper the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, take place. It took place in the midst of Passover. And what was Passover? Passover was this yearly feast that God called the children of Israel into where they hearkened back to, they remembered when God had delivered them from Egypt, right? So if we go back to the Old Testament and we visit the children of Israel in the nation of Egypt, where they are slaves and they have been made subservient to, to the Egyptians and they're, they're working and slaving themselves there. And God sends Moses, right? His man, his deliverer to come. And what is he to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? Because they've been in bondage. They've been in bondage. And we know that there's the series of plagues, right? And if anyone doesn't remember this, you can go read your Bible. Then, then watch the Ten Commandments, okay? Not, not vice versa, all right? Go read your Bible. And you can see what happened here and see what's going on and remember that everything that's taking place in the Old Testament is what? 
It's types and shadows of what's to come. It's, it's signposts pointing ahead to the true work that God is going to do. So we look and we see the children of Israel, God's own chosen people, chosen by His own mercy and grace, out of all the nations of the world, not because they were something, but because they were not. And He chooses them and He sets them apart, and then they go into bondage. And in this bondage, God sends a deliverer. And then in the middle of that, God gives instruction. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to have this meal. Remember, this was a strange meal. It was a meal where you had, to, you had to eat with your traveling clothes on, right? Because you had to be ready to go at any moment. And there was a particular ways that God wanted the meal prepared and how He wanted it set out each time uh, that night. And then everything that they did on that night, when God sent the angel of death and He passed over each of the houses that had painted the lamb's blood on the doorpost, signifying that they were set apart for the Lord, that they had believed in faith the message that was proclaimed to them, that if they would trust in the blood of the lamb, that they would be spared. Are you with me here? Are you connecting some dots already? Okay? A message, a proclamation, a gospel, a good news went out. The death angel was coming, but there was good news. If you were covered by the blood of the Lamb, you would be spared. Are you with me? Okay? And they have this meal. And the Lord sends the death angel in every house that by faith did according to the word of the Lord. They were spared. Whereas everyone else, the firstborn of every household, was killed. And there was great weeping in the land. So much so that finally, as the last straw, the last plague, Pharaoh says, God's people can go. Right? Now we know he's coming along after to chase them. But he lets them go. And we know the story. They get to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. And God, through Moses, separates the waters. And they walk through the waters on dry land. A baptism. A baptism of salvation for God's people. And a complete and total baptism of judgment on Pharaoh's army as they drown in the Red Sea. And they get to the other side and they, get, they are led through the wilderness and ultimately, we know, to the promised land. But what did God do? He instituted something. He said, that same meal that you had on that night, I want you to remember and have it again in the same way every year. And God gave the prescription for how their worship of Him should be during that time. And it was down to the way the table was set, the way the food was prepared, what, what cups were set out and what they were to drink at what time and when and what to say when they did it. It was incredibly liturgical as a meal. But every time that they did it, what did they do? They remembered the salvation of the Lord. Up until the time of Christ, 
the greatest miracle of deliverance that they had in their minds and their heart was the deliverance of their ancestors from the bondage of Egypt. And nobody could change the liturgy of that worship and that remembrance for that meal. Now imagine, you're with the disciples. And for the last three years, every year at Passover, together with Jesus, you've celebrated this same meal that you had celebrated with your family your whole life, who had celebrated it with their families their whole lives, and on and on all the way back to the original meal in Egypt. And it had gone the same way at the same time, every time, without fail. Because this is how God said it was to be done. There was no rogue father that at the table one night said, you know what guys, forget what God said. Let's drink this one now. Let's... On a whim and a fancy, let's just reverse the whole order of everything. That never happened. Because no one could change the liturgy of that meal except for God. Now again, remember, we're with the disciples, we're in the upper room, now it's the third year. And everything's prepared just as it always has been. Every time. And we're going through the course of the meal. We're following the, the, the prescription of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes the cup that was never touched. The cup that was left. And what does he do? He changes the script. I think we skip over this so lightly sometimes. The disciples must have been in utter shock. Something that had been being done for hundreds and hundreds of years, the same way, every time, and all of a sudden Jesus begins to change the script. And he takes the cup of wine, he takes the bread. He breaks it and He gives thanks. And now He says, this is My body, which is for you. It wasn't long before that that they had been with Him around the sea. And He had said to the people that were following Him that if they really wanted to be His followers, His disciples, they were going to have to eat His flesh and drink His blood. Remember, and everyone left. John chapter 6, they just, gone. Out of there. Jesus turns to the disciples, are, are you going to go as well? What does Peter say? Where are we going to go? You alone have the words which give eternal life. Jesus changes the script. And then he says, do this now in remembrance 
of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Suddenly, the meal takes on a whole new meaning. It's as if Jesus is saying, guys, this thing we've been remembering for all this time, it's actually pointing to what I'm about to do. And what does he do? He goes and he offers his body, which is beaten and broken even as the bread was broken as he gave thanks. And he's beaten and whipped and even stabbed with a spear so that blood and water come out. It pours out. Even as the wine was poured into the cup, His blood was poured out for us. Now, from that time, what used to be a meal that signified communion within the children of Israel and the deliverance that God had brought them out of Egypt now began to signify a unity in Christ and what would be His deliverance through the cross and His resurrection. Why? Because the bondage that the people of Israel were in in Egypt was nothing compared to the bondage of sin that we have been in from the beginning. And the miracle of the deliverance of God's people from the nation of Israel from a temporary physical bondage, the parting of the Red Sea and God's bringing them through that place is nothing compared to the deliverance of Jesus who gave His life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and was raised back to life for our justification. That miracle is greater than the parting of the Red Sea. That miracle of deliverance is greater than the miracle of deliverance of God's people from the nation of Israel. And so we should now celebrate differently, shouldn't we? So it was good and right and true for Jesus to institute this new liturgy for the worship of His people. And so we come here, and what's happened? In just so many short years, there's been a denigration of this worship. And so Paul offers this rebuke, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So, so now they've come together, but he's saying, this, this is not even neutral. You guys are doing something completely less than, worse than, if you didn't even come together. So she's like, it'd be better if you just didn't do anything. But when you come together, it's for the worse. For in the first place you come together as a church, he says in verse 18, and I hear, what what is the concern that Paul has? That there's divisions. That there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Uh, Some translation would say, and I believe the report of it, essentially. I hear it and I'm not surprised, he says. Probably because of all the other stuff that he's already dealt with in the first half of the book, right? Okay? And and so he comes, and what is his concern? 
What's interesting, we already know from the, from the rest of the book, there's sexual immorality going on. There's all kinds of people that are sinning and, and saying that grace may abound going on. And we get here, and that's not even what Paul has in view. What he has in view are the divisions among you. What's also interesting in the rest of Paul's letters, what you find out when it comes to church discipline, almost every kind of sin, there's, there's no real prescription for how that discipline is to play itself out over time. We've got Matthew 18, we've got some of the things that Paul's written in his letters to the church, and, and we've got to kind of take those together and work with them the best way that we have. But when it comes to division, do you know what Paul says? He gives a very specific prescription. He says, after warning a man twice, have nothing to do with him. The seriousness to this kind of sin within the church. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, that's what Paul has in view is the divisions. It's interesting. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's saying, so far have you denigrated that we can't even say that what you're doing is the Lord's Supper, no matter what you call it. You may say you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, but that's not the Lord's Supper you're eating, right? That's essentially, it's as much as someone saying that, you know, um, being baptized in a false church, you, didn't, you weren't really baptized, you just got wet, right? Why? Because there's a denigration of that sacrament in that place. Paul's saying, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Well, what's going on here? What we see is that they were coming together, they were having these feasts. But they didn't have, you know, the grocery store down the, down the corner. You know, there probably wasn't necessarily a church budget you know, where the church was like, hey guys, we're, we've done a lot, right? We'll provide the meat and you guys bring all the sides, right? What would happen? They, they all brought everything and whoever brought. And the, the idea was that the body should share those things, hold those things in common. But instead, what was happening? Someone was like, oh, I'm having, well, I don't, I don't know what you're having. I'm having T-bone steak and all the trims and the fixings and all this stuff. Can I have some? No, you can't have them. This is mine. And they would engorge themselves. Some of the church were acting as gluttons. And then those that didn't have were going without. And so this division within the church is even worse than disagreement. It's division based on some idea of class. Church, that is, that is blasphemy. Why? Because at the ground of the cross, there is only equality. 
Because the class that we all fit into, without exception, is dead in trespasses and sins. Sinners in need of a Savior. There's no division in Christ. But that's essentially what we say. It is great sin, it is great blasphemy. Why? Because to say that this believer is better than this believer is to present a false image of our Savior. To say that He Himself is divided. And He is not. He is whole. And the body should be whole. There's meant to be unity in our communion. Paul's already brought this up a little bit in chapter 10. If you just turn to the left a little bit in chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll go to 14 through 17. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. This is just beautiful passage of scripture right here. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. But verses 1 through 4, what do we see? All ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. And what was that? It says in the spiritual rock, the drink came from the spiritual rock and the rock was Christ. It was Christ. And so you skip ahead to verse 14 of chapter 10. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And he says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All are still called to eat and drink the same spiritual food and drink the same spiritual drink. There's not one for one person and something else for another person. We're all called to eat the same spiritual food and drink the same spiritual drink. And the substance is still the same as it was. In the Old Testament, what was the substance in the Old Testament? Paul says it was Christ. And what is the substance now? It is still Christ. And the expression of our communion is not only unity with Him, fellowship and participation. Obviously, this is not taking place in Corinth. The rich are acting as gluttons and the poor are going without. But there's also unity with one another in our communion that is expressed. Fellowship in participation. That's what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread.
You see, in Corinth, there's been a denigration from where the church began. We see in Acts 2, 42-47, the relation of what's going on in the early church. And what do we see right off the bat? What are they committed to? Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. There's been a denigration. Now instead of holding all things in common, now instead of sharing their food with glad and generous hearts, they're hoarding and keeping from one another. And so the poor go without. And this is an atrocity to Paul. This, beyond, beyond the sexual immorality that's going on in the church, that blows the mind. Beyond the other sins that are going on in the church, this division and the, and the separation of the poor, the humiliation of the poor in the body, is what Paul has in mind here. And instead of this breaking of bread associated with the teaching and the prayers and having all things in common instead of awe, which is the fear of the Lord and reverence of His holiness and splendor. You have a bunch of people who are just living for their own stomachs. Acts 2, 42-47 is not a picture of what's going on in the church in Corinth. So Paul calls them back. He calls them to reform their ways to the institution of the Lord. And so he reminds them. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, this isn't just something Paul was making up. It wasn't just something he's saying, hey guys, this is how we're going to do it. Paul's saying, the instruction I'm about to give you I got from Jesus Himself. Paul wasn't there in the upper room. But we know that there are times that Jesus presented Himself to Paul and gave him instruction. And so it seems that this is one of those things. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we see that Jesus provides from him own, from his own self his own body his own blood for the church to nourish them to feed them and to quench their thirst the prophets would prophesy of a time and they would say you who are hungry come and buy food without money 
who are thirsty, come and drink without cost. Jesus freely provides Himself. And where there should have been sharing and fellowship within the body of Corinth, there was not. The whole idea of communion that Paul is presenting is one of participation. And we don't see that same kind of fellowship and partnership in the church in Corinth. That's not the picture that we get. This idea of sharing and fellowship can also be seen in Galatians 6.6 where Paul encourages the, the body of Christ to share in all good things with the one who teaches them. And the word that's used there is koinonito, which is the, root, the same root that we have for koinonia, for fellowship. That, that, in, that in the way the church provided for the needs of their teacher, it wasn't a payment, it was a fellowship. It was a sharing. It was a partnership. Much in the same way in the, in the Old West, when you would have teachers that would come into a town, the teacher could not spend uh, their time sowing and reaping a harvest to bring to the market to provide money for themselves to buy the things that they needed to buy. Or, or to apply a different kind of trade while the students weren't in school so that they could bring something to market to sell or to buy or to trade. So what would happen, the teachers would come into a community and the community would come around and all the good things that they themselves were sowing and reaping from or applying their trade and, and benefiting from, they would share with that teacher so that that teacher had something to either bring to or take from the market. It's a similar idea. It's a partnership. It's a sharing. It's a fellowship. And Paul is presenting an idea that in the same way that that was supposed to be happening with the teacher, with the own members of the body, that that should be happening as well for those who couldn't provide for themselves. Why? Because there wasn't supposed to be a cost associated with coming to the Lord's table. I've, I've counseled with some of you in the past who have felt maybe, maybe you shouldn't come to the Lord's table because of something going on in your own heart against another brother. And you've gone to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount talking about if you have aught against your brother, you come to bring your gift to the altar and you have aught against your brother to, to go sort it out with your brother before you bring your gift. And I've said that I think that that is a misapplication to bring that over and place it over the Lord's Supper. Why? Because in the Lord's Supper, we do not come to give, but to receive. We are not coming to offer. We're not, we're not coming through the line offering anything to the Lord. What does He need from you? Can you feed Him that He may be satisfied? Can you give Him anything that would add to His worth? No. You're not being invited to come and give. 
you are being invited to come and receive. For there's someone who has already shared with you. There's someone who has already offered fellowship, partnership with you. Who has shared with you? Whose body is offered to eat? Whose blood is poured out to drink? Is it not Christ's? It is. It's Christ's. The same spiritual nourishment offered in the wilderness to God's peculiar people. It is Christ Himself. And for what purpose? What does Jesus say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Theologians would would talk about this in this kind of language. A sign and seal of the promise made. A sign and seal of the promise made. The blood on the posts of the house was a sign and seal of the promise that was made that if they in faith believed, trusting that if they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, that the angel of death would pass over them, that physical sign and seal of that Lamb's blood was for the frailty of their own human condition, a grace to those people to know we've done what God has asked of us here. We can trust that He will be faithful to His Word. What's happening in communion? We make the pilgrimage to the table and we hold in our hands physical elements of grain and the fruit of the vine. And we are reminded from these physical elements elements of the promise that has been made. And what is the promise? It's still the same promise, but amplified and better. That those who partake of the body and the blood of the Lord are those whose hearts have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. What is the promise? It is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So that each and every week that we come together, it can be for the better and not for the worse. So that we can be reminded of the promise of God and know through the sign and seal that the promised given will be fulfilled. This is why when we have ordered our services, we've ordered them in such a way that everything would culminate in the receiving of the Lord's Supper. I pray that even as we gather together that you would feel that in your worship. That you would feel that everything is leading to this point, to the receiving of that sacrament. That you would be reminded continually that you're coming offering nothing 
as the song sings, the old song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That we come not with hands laden and burdened, trying to offer something, but we come with open hands, knowing that our burden has already been relieved so that we might receive fresh grace from our Savior. A reminder of the promise made, forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe. And so he gives this instruction. He says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what's the unworthy manner that he has in mind? Jump to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What he's, he's saying, the very things that I was talking to you about, how one is being a glutton and the other is being neglected. That's what I'm talking about. That's eating in an unworthy fashion. That's not eating with the body of Christ in mind, looking to His body and His blood, looking to His sacrifice for my redemption, be reminded of the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's not rightly discerning the Lord's body. And that's what it would be to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. How can we say that this is true? For he says, let a person examine himself then. And these next words should give you so much hope. Let a person examine himself then. And can I just be honest what my expectation would be? The next word for the next words. And let Mike examine himself then and so withhold himself from the table of the Lord, for he is not worthy. So often we've put we've taken the import of the word worthy in the in the verses above without the context of the rest of the passage and the actual instruction that Paul was giving to this church who was in the midst of division and disunity, who were humiliating the poor and saying, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And we just jump right here because this is the part we most often go to and we say, you've got to be worthy to come to the table. Well, church, there is no one who is worthy to come to the table. We take an account of our lives over the last week. We think about how our lives have been. Have we been walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? We need to think about that. But is, if the answer to that is no, the answer to that is not, don't come to the table. The answer to that is what? Confess your sins. Repent. Be reconciled to the Lord. How long does that take? We've just been talking about this church. How long does it take? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 How long does it take? 
before you can say it, it's done. Praise God. Which means what? In, that, in the very moment that we come here, the moment your mind even begins to think about your own worthiness, you, you have to take a, pro, a proper account. Anyone's proper account ends with not, not worthy. You're coming up with any other sum at the end of that, you've done your arithmetic incorrectly. We're all unworthy when it comes to our ability to come to the table in our own works. But can I tell you something? The moment you confess your sins to God, you are made worthy to come to the table. Why? Because in that moment of confess, why are you confessing your sin? You're confessing your sin because you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins to forgive you of your sins and he was raised for your justification. So that in that very moment that you confess your sins to God, you are rightly discerning the Lord's body. You are rightly discerning the Lord's body. And so the words don't say, let a man examine himself then and withhold himself from the table. But rather it says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, if you've got aught against your brother and you realize that and you confess your sin before God and you receive communion, but then you continue to have aught against your brother, have we got a problem? Yeah. Yep. But what should you do? Having received grace and mercy from the Lord, go and make things right with your brother and extend grace in the same way that you have received. Amen? Whatever that sin is, don't, don't confess your sin before God and come to the table and then continue to walk in that sin. That's not rightly discerning the Lord's body. But those who come truly in faith, confessing their sin before God, are forgiven. And the sacrament becomes a sign and seal of the promise made. The promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's something that we need continually. It's something that we are committed to as a body eternally. As often as we gather to partake of the Lord's Supper, to be invited week after week to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, trusting that what is communicated to us through that sacrament is His grace. Let's pray together this morning. Would you stand with me?
Father, we thank you for this morning and this time in your word, this reminder that what we are about to do in receiving from your table is a sign and seal of the promise made of forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe, of unity with you and with the rest of your body. God, I pray that where there have been divisions within our own ranks, God, that you would remove that humiliation from us. God, that you would deal with our hearts, that you would create in us, Lord, hearts that are full of grace and mercy toward one another. And Lord, as we continue to commit ourselves to the preaching of your word and the administration of your sacraments week after week, we trust you, God, by your spirit and through your word to conform your people to your image little by little, day by day. May we grow in maturity together, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.